The reading today is taken from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is God's word. Good morning. Uh, let me have my welcome, bank holiday welcome. Anyone see the uh, cyclists coming in today? There's a 1920s cycle race. Did you see that? Oh well. <laughs> it's a whole anecdote wasted on you. Not to worry. Let's pray instead. Father, you have uh, words you need to speak to us today. You have uh, work you want to do within us uh, today. So thank you that you are a speaking God. You speak words that change us by your spirit. And we pray you would do that so that we would indeed praise you for who you are and what you've done. Amen. Now, it's never nice to be a stranger or to really feel that very acutely. sort of desperate sense of, oh, I just want to be back home. Uh, a number of years ago, I went to uh, uh, Israel uh, with a group, and uh, at one point, uh, I left my travelling companions because I wanted to go off and visit on a Sunday morning the Alliance Church that uh, uh, we support as a mission partner, and it was a great delight to go there and visit them, Jack Sarah and the others, at uh, Jerusalem Alliance Church in the old city. Um, and uh, then afterwards, after that, I had lunch with them, and uh, I just needed to get a cab and meet up with my travelling companions in Jericho, which you know, is just a few miles down the road. Now, as I drove along the road in the car and the taxi, uh, there was a checkpoint, and my taxi driver said, oh, you'll need to show your passport. And I said, oh, there's a problem. That's with my friends in Jericho, along with the rest of my bags. And the taxi driver just turned around and said, oh, dear. <laughs> And I thought, well, how bad can it be? Oh, dear. Um, and uh, so it's just often, yeah, the, the situation there is obviously very tense often. So can I see your passport, sir? No. Out of the car. 
and uh, you've got these two 20-year-olds pointing their rifles at you, and you think, well, I've just, you know, it's just a passport. You know, haven't done anything wrong yet. Where are you going? Just going to meet my friends. Why haven't you got your passport? My passport's with them. Uh, why didn't you carry it with you? I forgot. Who were you visiting? Some friends at a church. What sort of church was it? It's a Palestinian church. Tell me more about your friends, sir. Uh, oh, no, this is, go- this is not going well. And uh, then it's the sort of full search, frisking. And you do- it's one of those moments you just think, oh, I just want to be home. I just want to be home. This has been interesting, but I just want to be home. Uh, that's what I wanted at that time. There's a sense in which the letter of 1 Peter is uh, the Apostle Peter writing to Christians and saying, you're not home. This world is not your home. You are strangers in the world, verse 1, this phrase that comes up a couple of times. And sometimes you really feel that. Sometimes, if you're a Christian, you're in this world and you think, I want to be home. This is, I don't want this. I don't want this suffering of pain. I don't want this. I want to be home now. And Peter said that is entirely normal, entirely expected that you should live that way. He starts off just these uh, first couple of verses uh, to the letter with a, a contrast. He says, you're chosen by God, yet strangers in the world. So he starts off, you are to God's elect. Verse 2, those who have been chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen before the beginning of time, every Christian has been personally chosen by God the Father before the beginning of time. Verse 2, set apart through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for the purpose of obeying Jesus Christ. Sprinkling with his blood, that's just uh, an Old Testament picture of a solemn covenant being dedicated, obedience to Jesus Christ. Every Christian has been chosen before the beginning of time by God to serve Jesus Christ, personally chosen. Wonderful. And yet, on the other hand, strangers. Strangers in the world. For the Christian knows that this world is not their home, and at times it'll therefore feel strange. So you may well feel a stranger in the workplace when the drift of the firm ethically is just just awkward, and you think, no, I... I'm uncomfortable with these decisions being taken. Everyone else seems comfortable. I feel a bit strange sticking my hand up and saying, are we sure about that? You might feel a stranger in the family. Your, maybe your child rearing may be very different to everyone else's around you and that might feel a bit odd. Or you may be in your own family the only Christian and at times that's odd and awkward. You go home for Christmas, you're the only one. and It feels odd, strange. It could just be more generally, your ambitions are strange to those around you. You're, you hope for, long for different things. And Peter says, yeah, that's right. That is entirely normal for the Christian to feel that way at times. Don't blend in. Be different. Be distinctive. I mean, the recurrent phrase throughout the, the letter is, be holy, be good, do good, be different. Expect that you stick out a little bit. That is entirely normal for the Christian. And in today's uh, passage, uh, uh, chapter 1, 1 to 12, it strikes me there are two in particular strange things that Christians do that aren't normal, perhaps. They rejoice in trials 
and they love a man they cannot see. Now those are unusual things, slightly strange things to do. So there's one great work of God. He's given us new birth, verses 3 to 5, and then two strange things that Christians do. Okay? So he's given us new birth, that's strange. Sorry, that's the great work of God, 3 to 5, two strange things. You rejoice in trials, 6 and 7, and you love him without seeing him 8 to 9. Let's work through it. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3 then. Praise be, that's going to be the real outcome. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Praise be, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth. Now, that's because the phrase that gives them, these words give rise to the phrase a born-again Christian, has largely negative connotations, I think, in, in certainly in the secular press. But the Bible knows no other Christian apart from one that is born again. That is the only type of Christian there is, that God has done a work within them. And of course, it's a striking metaphor. It suggests something fairly radical. So if you compare it with physical birth, your physical birth... That wasn't something you sat down one day and planned. You didn't plan it. You didn't sit down with your to-do list and think, well, you know, whatever, 1st of, first of uh, whatever, 6th of May, uh, 1964, I, just, I think I'll be born that day. You don't plan that. And, of course, it's, it's a radical change in your life. Your life was never the same again when you left the womb. It's, it's a fairly radical shift of environment and awareness and, Actually, spiritual birth, or being born again, as Peter describes it here, it's the same. You didn't plan it. It's God's decision. And it's a radical change in your life. Your life is never the same when the Spirit comes and gives you new birth. And it's new birth into two parallel things here. I don't know if you noticed them, but it's new birth into a living hope and an unfading inheritance, verse 4. They're the same thing, but two just have parallel takes on them. So first, you've been, been given uh, new birth into a living hope. That's a hope with vibrancy. There's a difference between a living hope and a dead hope. I hope that's obvious. Let me explain. Yesterday, I don't know if anyone watched uh, the FA Cup final So Chelsea versus Liverpool, it's a big deal in the UK, of course. Uh, Now, there's a point in the game, uh, about 50 minutes in, Chelsea are winning 2-0. Hurrah. Uh, That's an aside. But uh, Chelsea are winning 2-0, and you could see it on the Liverpool players. Their shoulders slumped. And, of course, at that point, you know, just over half the game left. They hope they're going to win, but really, it doesn't look like it. Chelsea were dominant, rampant all over them. And so they, they hope, but it's a, a slightly forlorn hope, going through the motions hope. But then they scored. And it's 2-1, and ooh, ooh, that changes things. And all of a sudden, heads go up, they're driven forward, there's a lot more optimism, optimism and after they scored at 60 minutes, the game changed. And you think, they, they may well go on and win this. They didn't. Good. Um, but... They went from having a a bleak hope, a dead hope, I guess, to a living hope. They thought they might do it. And that drove them forward. It gave them ambition. It gave them energy. 
living hope. Christians have a living hope within them, but it's not a, a vague aspiration. Oh, we, oh, we might win. It might happen. It's not a vague aspiration along the lines of, oh, I hope, I hope it doesn't rain the, rain the whole of May. Well, you know, that's a sort of vague hope, but apparently it's going to rain still, the worst ever. But um, a Christian hope is a certain hope because it's grounded upon the promises of God. So the hope that Peter speaks of here, it's much more the hope of, I really hope that tomorrow is Monday. Well, what day is it today? Sunday. What normally happens after Sunday? Monday. Good. Can you ever think of a Sunday when Monday hasn't happened the next day? No. Well then, that's a pretty good hope you've got there, isn't it? It's that sort of hope that Peter is speaking of because it's guaranteed by the promises of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living hope. It'll transform you. It'll give you energy. It is certain. You've been given a living hope, says Peter. God has raised Jesus from the dead and the same power has given Christians spiritual birth into this living hope. And the other perspective on it is it's a living hope and verse 4 an unfading inheritance. Verse 4, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Never. Now, having that inheritance in the future, that transforms things. I, um, I don't know why quite so much. I very much enjoy reading the Rich List. So last Sunday, the Sunday Times Rich List came out. I think that's a very interesting document. I don't know why. Um, but amongst the thing, other things I learned, Daniel Radcliffe is doing very well for himself, uh, 40 million odd or something, uh, which is not bad just because you happen to look like what an illustrator once looked, thought Harry Potter looked like. But anyway, um, and uh, reading about his little uh, story, age 17, he was just given a small allowance by his parents. Age 18, the trust fund cracks open. And he inherited something like 20, or came into 23 million, which has gone up and up since then. He's done a few more Harry Potter films. Age 17, just, just a little bit, but he knows what's coming. Age 18, ooh, very different. Can you imagine you are 17-year-old, or imagine the 17-year-old Daniel Radcliffe. He uh, gets his driving license, passes his test, and says to his mum and dad, I want to buy a car. And they say no. I mean, how, how you can imagine that conversation but all my friends have cars. I'll be the only one without a car. You know, you can imagine the sort of windy, but I'm the only one. I really want a car. And um, that could be grating for your parents. You can imagine he thinks he's the, the hardest done by teenager in the whole world. But knowing in a few days' time or a few months' time you're going to get 23 million, that changes your disappointment. You might be a little bit frustrated for two months, but, you, but you're going to think for yourself of your Daniel Radcliffe I can't get a car now, but in two months' time, I'll have a helicopter. <laughs> I'll have a helicopter. My parents have never had one of them. I'll have an aeroplane. Oh, I'll have, I'll have a fleet of cars. Hurrah. It changes things when you know you'll come into that sort of inheritance. And Peter says, you have a living hope, it's absolutely certain. You have an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. That'll take the sting out of disappointments in life and frustrations. If we let that seep in, that'll change us. 
You know, the only other things in the New Testament described as imperishable are God, the Word of God, and the new creation. That's a pretty strong list, isn't it? Your inheritance is as secure as God. As long as he's alive, which is slightly his job description, your inheritance is fine. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, how many other things can you say for in life that that's true of? You may have a fine reputation. It can spoil quite quickly. You might have cars that are worth thousands of pounds. They will spoil. Rust gets them eventually, or the computers break down and no one knows what to do with them. Money, it fades in value, even if you hold on to it. Peter says, here's something that that can never perish, spoil, fade. How many other things can you say that of? And for many of us, there are things that we've got at the moment that we think are wonderful. But all of them can spoil, perish, fade. Give you an obvious example. The, um, uh, many will remember Ken Lay. Ken Lay, of course, was a CEO of uh, Enron. And uh, in the mid, uh, mid-90s, he was viewed as somewhat of a corporate god. You know, he took Enron from a nothing nowheresville to the America's seventh highest company, 40 million employees in the world. He himself, multimillionaire. Everyone wanted his advice. I mean, he was viewed as an absolute hero. And then in 2001, it just all collapsed. Of course, the whole thing was built on a sham. But he was completely, he lost everything. His fortune, his reputation, and his life. All gone. And everything can fade quite easily. Peter says, here is something that you cannot lose. It is wonderful, this inheritance. Praise God. Verse 4, it's an inheritance kept in heaven for us. Verse 5, we're kept for that inheritance. It's a wonderful combination. God is guarding us by his power, shielding us. We will make it. Verse 4, it is an inheritance kept for you. This isn't just an abstract thing. God has got, if you're a Christian, trusting in Jesus Christ, an inheritance for you. And for you, it's you, personal. Uh, Who remembers their first day at school? Probably no one. Uh, Unless you've had a child go to school fairly recently. Someone's nodding their heads. Well done. uh, That probably means a bad thing happened, though. But um, the first day of school, first day of primary school, age four or five, a child goes. Uh, This is a few years ago now for us. But I still remember a child goes and... Of course, they're nervous, but what happens when they get there? Their desk has got their name on it. There's a hook with their name on it. There's books, all written out by their teacher with their names on, to give to them, whatever it may be. Because the teacher knows they're coming and has prepared a place for them. For them, not just generally for people, for them, every child. Name on the wall, name on the desk, name in the books. God has got a place, an inheritance in heaven for you, if you're a Christian, personally for you. Praise God. That's fabulous. That is fabulous. Jesus has given us new birth into a living hope. Praise him. But that allows Christians to do two strange things to my mind. Uh, And here they are. The first is this, verses 6 and 7. So, you rejoice 
during trials. You rejoice during trials. So verse 6, in this, that is the wonderful inheritance, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter says that's normal Christian living. Joy in knowing Jesus Christ. Joy in, in knowing where you're going. Trials in this life. There'll be trials here and now. You've just got to expect that. It's a, it's a very general word. It's not necessarily persecution as such. It could just be um, the trying circumstances of life. Unemployment. Illness. Bereavement. Try. It's a sort of very general word that Peter uses here. But the Christian is able to, amazingly, rejoice in them. Why so? Well, because, well, for two re- or at least three reasons <laughs> that he gives us. First is they're brief. Verse 6, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you suffer. Now, this is not to undermine the genuine pain of trials. Physical pain that is very real. Emotional pain that can be equally crippling. It's not to, un- not to deny the reality of those. But Peter is saying when you, when you see the scheme of eternity, the time of your, the trial, it is brief. Time relativizes them. It doesn't take them away. Look, for myself, I've never, I don't think I've ever really suffered a huge amount. I mean, seven years ago now, my wife was in hospital for three months, my son for two months after that. It was a wretched period. whole of life seemed on standby. And at the time, you function and not a lot else goes on. But it was seven years ago. So now, oh yeah. yeah that was rubbish at the time, wasn't it? Oh well. <laughs> um, at the time, it was everything. It was life-consuming. Now, seven years on, well, you know, I remember it, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. Do you see the time? It, it makes a difference. Peter says your trials are brief compared to the scheme of eternity. That perspective helps. I have a friend who uh, uh, has a number of children. One of them is severely autistic, uh, uh, now a teenager, um, really unable to communicate. They have basic sign language, but often it's impossible to, to know what she's saying. So she has real issues with anger because she can't communicate. And uh, there have been times where I've been with them and watched him very patiently, trying to understand what she's saying, try to calm her down a little bit, uh, watch her just attack him physically, and he's just trying to be very calm. And he say, gosh, you, you know, you're good with her. You have a real patience with her. He's often said, yeah. I look at my daughter and I long for heaven every day. And I know that when we're there, there'll be time to chat. We'll have lots of things to catch up on that we haven't quite said to one another now. So yeah, it's, oh, yeah there's frustration. But boy, do I long to be with her in heaven. And plenty of time. That perspective, it does change things. These trials are brief, relatively, says Peter. Equally striking, they're necessary. 
this little phrase in the NIV, uh, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. Literally, it was necessary you suffered grief. It was necessary you suffered grief. So the striking truth of the Scriptures is this, God does nev- God never tries his people without reason or cause. God never allows his people to endure trials without reason or cause. Now that's a hard truth, but a wonderful one. Without it, the trials and sufferings of this world would be unbearable because they're just random. There's no purpose. You just... Stuff happens, and it happens to have landed on you. Sorry about that. That's very hard to bear. To know that God has purposes, never without reason or cause, would he allow a Christian to go through trial. That changes them. Why are they necessary? Well, verse 7, it's because of the benefit they bring. So they're brief, they're necessary, they bring benefit. Verse 7, these have come, why? So that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine these have come God uses trials to refine our faith if you want to refine this is a new, new thing for me if you want to refine gold you heat it to apparently 2660 degrees that's quite hot um, and none of us would be able to bear that Peter says your faith is worth a lot more than gold but the Lord will refine you. He'll put you in the fire. He'll heat under you. He'll heat you up in order to refine your faith. Now, none of us put our hand in the air and say, brilliant, more refining for me, please. That sounds fabulous. Going in a furnace, ooh, super, boil me up. None of us, none of us sort of volunteer for that. So that would be perverse. But Peter is saying that when trials come, that is what they're doing. It's not the only reason the Bible would give, but it's a strong one. God is refining our faith through trials. When God wants to refine the faith of Christians, that's what he does. He sends trials. And the result? Well, the result will be worth it because the result is, verse 7, praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And I think that's for the Christian in the flow of the grammar. That you'll get there to the last, on the last day and you say, you come before the Lord and you're praised and you receive glory and honor for keeping going. And you say, well, I wouldn't have got through it unless you'd sent all those trials. You know, it's the, it's the player who wins the Wimbledon Cup or the plate and says, well, I wouldn't have got through it unless my coach had drilled me so hard. There were some pretty boring hours in the gym, some pretty boring hours on the court. But it's worth it for this moment. And of course we'll say that. Praise, glory and honor. So rejoicing during trials, that's a strange thing to do, isn't it? Not many people are able to do that. But the Christian is able to do that because they know this world is not our home. And God is preparing us, helping us get through to the next through our trials. So don't despise them. Don't delight in them. But when they come, rejoice in the inheritance that they are helping you long for. It's one strange thing. You rejoice in trials. 
So God has given us new birth. It means we can rejoice in trials. And second thing, you can love him without seeing him. Verses 8 and 9. Here again is the wonder of the Christian new birth. We've never seen Jesus Christ physically. I I haven't. I don't suppose you have face to face. Um, We've never seen him. And yet our eyes have been opened. Uh, The word of God has given us in chapter 2. We'll look at this in more detail. But the word of God has given us new birth. We see Jesus through these words. And it's a very real seeing. It's a deeper seeing than well, then the crowds who were there in the first century, they may have seen him eye to eye, but they didn't really know who he was or really get him. We may not see him face to face, but we do know who he is. It's the wonder of the Christian new birth. We don't see him physically, but we love him. Now, look, let me reverse eight again and tell me if this is your experience. You don't see him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, do you all feel that? Well, I'm sure there was a day. Um, we don't always feel that. The striking thing for me about this is, this is not a command. Peter's just describing. You see verse 8? You love him. You believe in him. You're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy in him. Oh. That's strange. Now, I wouldn't want to be too prescriptive about what precisely that looks like. I mean, what is an inexpressible joy? I can't tell you it's inexpressible. Um, obviously, it's good. It's a glory-filled joy. When he says it's a glorious joy, that is the joy is in something which is wonderful. That's, you want to be careful before being too prescriptive about what this is meant to look like. But it's clearly meant to be good. Isn't it? I mean, it's fairly obvious. Verse 9 is the reason, though. Why are you filled with such a joy? For because you are receiving the gold of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we all fall short of an inexpressible and glorious joy, I'd imagine. But we should be uh, aspiring to it. But the reason for the joy is that, that the, the knowledge of what is coming in the future brings some of that joy with it into the present even though you're not there. Poor illustration. Let me just frank that up from the beginning. But um, just before Easter, uh, we went skiing. First time in years we've gone skiing. Fabulous. Forgotten how good it could be. Now, before we went, uh, the friends who'd arranged the trip, they kept ringing up and saying, oh, by the way, have you got this? You will need a decent amount of sun lotion because it's going to be about 23 degrees. Oh, really? Oh, that's good. It's very exciting. Thank you very much. Um, now, you have remembered to pack your swimmers, haven't you? Because there's an outdoor hot tub. Really? Ooh, that's going to be good. Um, do, you do, uh, our kids are really looking forward to you. Yeah, yeah, the kids are going to have a great time, aren't they? Yeah, fabulous. Ooh, that's going to be good. And you have all these conversations on the phone, and the, the excitement of what is coming in the future is dragged into the present. You're not there, but you think, oh, that is going to be good, isn't it? Ooh, yes. And that sort of, you know... We all know this. You've got a holiday in three weeks' time. Someone says, how are you? Oh, pretty exhausted. Holiday in three weeks, though. Or you get, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm on my knees. We go on Saturday. You know, the excitement of what's in the future is dragged into the present. And that, I think, is somewhat of what Peter is saying. You can have wonderful 
inexpressible joy in Jesus Christ. It's not an abstract thing. It's a person. He's a person. You have wonderful joy in him now because you know how good it will be to be with him then. Somewhat. And the joy of the future is dragged into the present. And you can, you're not there with him, but you can speak to him on the phone as it were. You can speak to him. He can speak to you. The joy of the future is dragged into the present. And I guess also this means, Peter's just describing, if we never know this, if this sort of inexpressible and glorious joy is never ours, I think Peter would say, then you're worshipping the wrong Jesus. Because if you worship the Jesus of the Scriptures, this is what it should be like. And if you never know this, then you have a truncated little Jesus. And you need to worship the real one and meet with him. If you never know any form of joy. So two strange things. Uh, The Lord God has given us new birth into a living hope. So Christians rejoice in trials and they love him, even though they never see him. Two strange things. And the main application is give thanks, praise him. Praise him. There's extraordinary truth, says Peter, the knowledge of where you're going. He just reinforces that very briefly in these last few verses. What a privilege. Verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted forward. What a privilege. The prophets of the Old Testament, they were, it was all about serving us. And predicting for us what was going to take place. Now, slide aside. It is an extraordinary thing that the Old Testament does predict the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, end of verse 11. And in a very detailed way, if you read something like a Psalm 22... Psalm 22 reads, All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, they shake their heads, they divide my garments among them, they cast lots for my clothing. That's quite an accurate prediction of what took place around the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You you need to take that seriously, doesn't it, aside? It's got to make you think, hasn't it? You can't dismiss the scriptures when their prophecies are that good. I mean, uh, my reading in the rich list. Uh, Warren Buffett, he's done better this year. He's back up to worth about $50 billion, which must be a great relief to him, having dipped around 44 last year. That must have been stressful. Um, but uh, he's worth a huge amount of money. Uh, because he's a shrewd investor, he makes good calls about what will happen in the future. That's what he's done over the course of his lifetime. And if he comes along and says, look, I've got a certain tip that this is going to take place next year, you'd listen. I mean, he's got $50 billion worth of good guesses about what will happen next. You'd probably listen. You might disagree with him, but you'd at least have a concern and think, well, what have you got to say, Warren? You're quite good at this. I shall weigh your opinion. Look, if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, I mean, do take these claims seriously. These extraordinary prophecies came true. You've got to to weigh that. You may disagree eventually, but you've got to take that seriously. But do you see, the main point here is the prophets were serving Christians now. So verse 11, they, they, they were pointing uh, towards the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. What does that mean? Well, it means that in predicting what would take place in the future, 
The prophets help us understand the work of Jesus Christ. But more than that, what is it they predict? Chapter 1, verse 11, they predicted sufferings of Christ, glories that would follow. And that is the pattern for the believer. They're meant to be preparing us for that. So just very quickly, trace with me. Sufferings, then glory. Chapter 2, verse 20, very quickly. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter two, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, if you suffer for doing good, this is commendable before God because Christ suffered and then went on to glory. That's the pattern he gives us. Or chapter 4, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Sufferings, then glory. Chapter 5, verse 1. I appeal to you as a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Do you see this is what this letter is about? There'll be sufferings and then glory. The Old Testament prophets, they said believers in 21st century London, there'll be sufferings, then glory. And if you want to know what a Christian looks like, it's sufferings, then glory. That's a very useful preparation ground. And if you're expecting something else, you'll have no joy right now. If you want glory now, more glory later, you'll be disappointed. Don't be surprised at what's taking place, says Peter. Very normal Christian sufferings, all kinds of trials. Sufferings now, glory later. And that's what, in chapter 1, the, the, um, the prophets were preparing us for. They were serving us. Verse 12, even angels long to look into these things, because now is where the action's at. It's amazing, isn't it? The angels sat around, in, I don't know what they're doing. The angels uh, were flying around in heaven, praising God and saying, do you see what's going on down in London? That's where the action is. Oh, I wish I was there. Oh, I wish I was there. It'd be much more exciting to be, really? I, well, anyway, I'm not sure about that. But um, they long to look into these things. They long for it. As Peter begins his letter, he says, the living God, if you're a believer, the living God has given you new birth, into what? A living hope and inheritance that can never be taken away from you. That'll allow you to do extraordinary things, really. You can give thanks and praise God. Even if you're suffering trials, you can love a man you've never seen with a wonderful joy. Oh, I'll tell you what, the prophets, the angels, they'd they'd love to be in your shoes, says Peter. Praise him. Praise him. Give thanks to him. And if you were able this morning, if we were able to have one of our rickety interviews with a shaky camera, with a mission partner that we sometimes do, imagine we could do that, but not with a mission partner, but with a believer in heaven. And you said, how is it? He said, fabulous. Fabulous. Now, you had a rough time. You lived in North Korea and were persecuted for your faith, eventually killed for your faith. You really suffered during your lifetime as a Christian. Was it worth it? Oh, yeah. One minute in heaven was worth years in a work camp. And I've got a lot more than one minute. I've got eternity. I'll keep going. Sufferings now, glory later. That'll be the pattern of 1 Peter. Praise him if you're a believer. He's given you a new birth into a living hope. He can never be taken from you. Praise him. Let's pray together.
Our loving Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and give you great praise. Often it's very easy for us to focus on the here and now and forget what a wonderful thing it is you've done. You've poured new life into us. We've been, if we're believers, born again and therefore have a hope which is wonderful, truly wonderful, that is certain it cannot be snatched away and it'll keep us going in the deepest frustrations of this life. So thank you that you've poured into us by your Spirit a living hope. And would that hope drive us forward? Would it sustain us in trials? Would it lead us to praise you? Amen.